Hey, you're back with Comic Syllabus, and today we really are going to talk about um, Junie Ba and uh, TKO Studios' Jalea, um, a West African fantasy epic. Um, if you tuned in to the audio podcast or maybe the polybag segment last couple of days, I think I said in the intro that we were going to talk about Jalea, and then we never did. Um, here we are doing it now. So. Um, to clear up any confusion, Comic Syllabus is a weekly podcast on multiversitycomics.com, but we also release the segments in video form. To catch those, subscribe. It's in the show notes, um, or you can catch it on our, our, our host page at Castos. Um, and, uh, and sometimes my scheduling just gets a little wacky. So I had thought that Jalea would, be, would, be, would wind up in the audio podcast last um, last episode and, and it didn't so my apologies for that anyway comic syllabus is <laughs> where i am um, i'm paul i talk about comics and graphic novels try to take different various perspectives on them i'm an english teacher and just a passionate comics reader and uh, of course you can find our home at multiversitycomics.com and um Hey, I would love some feedback about what you're reading, what you think about the show, your thoughts and, 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 and insights and questions and, um, and even your critical pushback about what I say. Um, at, uh, you can find me on Twitter or on Instagram or in our Facebook group um, or email me. All that is in the show notes uh, to this episode, wherever you may be catching it. Um, so, Jalea, I'm really excited to talk about this book. Uh, I gotta say, it's already leaped to towards the top of my list for the favorite things that I've read in 2021. Um, Juni Ba is a storyteller, an artist, um, originally from Senegal, whose um, whose new book from TK, TKO Studios is kind of a big, uh, sort of a debut from a creator who is already rising in prominence. Um, you know, I see uh, Ba's art uh, gracing some big two variant covers. Uh, for instance, um, I think he's got a, 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 a truth and justice digital first story about Robin coming out or maybe out already on DC Universe Infinite. So I'm really excited to read that. I might talk about it here on the podcast. Um, but from his art and from how he discusses it, um, you can really see, you can really understand why he is um, he is just um, very much emerging. I love this art. This book is just visually just dope. I mean, look at this cover, that um, sort of monocrat chromatic shades of yellow that just have these detailed illustrations set against the large areas of white on this cover. Just remind me of, um, so I've ta recently talked about John Paul Leone, one of my favorite artists. Um, and at the same time, there is just the true cartooniness. And I say that word with the highest praise um, because cartooniness to me is is beautiful and splendid and a, and a rich and elaborate and thick language. Um, but the true cartooniest, uh, uh, cartooniness of these characters that we can see, uh, who we'll learn more about in a second, and their Bigfoot proportions and, and, and kind of the clear assignation of cultural pieces in the architecture and the character designs and the dress and the weaponry, um, all such powerful allusions to a West African um, fantasy epic, which sums it up so, so well. So. Uh, you can already hear I am a big fan of this book. I've been gushing about the art, but it is also not only the story, but also what the story is trying to say, what it's trying to express that has me really feeling like Junie Ba is um, an incredible talent to watch. And this is a book I, I, I truly, truly enjoy. Um, 
as I said, it is a um, West African uh, fantasy epic. And um, Juni Ba has said in interviews, like I'll link to the show notes to uh, one he did with the, the comic book couples counseling podcast, which is a lot of fun. Um, shout out to those those folks. Um, but that Ba has said that his work is a kind of a blend of Cartoon Network styles. Uh, I think uh, Samurai Jack, I think he's made allusion to Samurai Jack quite often. And the stories and the culture and the folk tales and history of his native um, Senegal and West Africa more generally. Um, so Jalia being a West African uh, fantasy epic really kind of merges that kind of folk storytelling with a lot of contemporary fantasy. Um, TKO is a publisher, if you're not aware of them, who started fairly recently and whose you know selection the curation of comics has really impressed me oh, i really liked sarah uh, i like the banks uh, sentient um and also not only their distribution model but their ways of connecting with fans and things they've advocated for um to me they have really given a lot of other you know recent company launches you know and and even standbys like image um They've really given them a run for their money. So I've been really impressed with their publish, publishing output. When I saw that Juni Bao, whose work I'd started to kind of see in various places and, and kind of get excited about, when I saw that Bao was publishing this this graphic novel, Jalea, at um, TKO, I was like, pre-order. <laughs> um, and I am so intrigued. I, I was intrigued by preview images and, I, and I'm so intrigued in this book how this storyteller voice really does have this merger of like like uh like you know ba had mentioned in those interviews this cartoon network kind of you know the not only is the cartooning bigfoot but the sort of like storytelling the kind of the the weight and the heft and a little bit not too taking yourself too seriously in taking yourself really really seriously you know you can imagine sort of a booming voice of a narrator merging that with the um what i what i have to assume um because of my own lack of knowledge to be the kind of west african or or senegalese uh folk folk tale um you can hear in this this is the first page right here and in this introduction says the wizard somaro once ruled peacefully over the world until one day he blew it all to pieces with the push of a button no one knows why we thought to ask but it was the apocalypse we had other things to do you know, and you can just hear in that narrative, which is so much of the tone of the whole book, the kind of little, the, you know, it's it's like a, a tale told by a storyteller with a smirk. Um, I think that's the way that, you know, it, it doesn't do anything to undercut actually the, the thematic um, weight power of this book at all. But, um, but just these elements that are so well put together. I mean, the line work in this, screams to me um you know something between you know the the symbology and the um the kind of arabesque designs of perhaps you know of either folk tales or folk stories or um or you know artistry architecture um from that part of the world and then uh, you know you can see these dramatic thick clouds and you can see uh, you know this tower these these sort of designs right and yet also something in that line work sort of says cartoonish, right? Cartoony. And again, I say that word um, with, with all love and respect um, for, for the legacy of cartooning. Um, and so there is that kind of beautiful merger all through the book. 
Um, this is the the launch of the story. We're in the realm of talking about you know angry gods uh, and you know fates of the world and apocalypses. But the very next page, we actually meet our protagonist, and it becomes a very um, grounded and anchored story in these characters who are just so fun to look at. I mean, I, I could just you know enjoy these character designs for for I mean, these are everything to me and um, and you know Bai use is really the full package of things that make characters come alive I mean you know animation has really made this silhouette principle you know this idea that characters should be recognizable even by their shadows um, and, 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 and Ba makes it just totally true. It is true in comics, right? Um, but um, makes it totally true in, 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 in the character designs. You can see the sort of the two main characters um, and one more who comes in later. Um, we meet Awa, who is the main character that you could see um, our arrow pointing at. And Awa is the main character, although very much presented in kind of an interconnected relationship with Mansoor. Um, who is the other character that we see in the next in the following panel? Awa is a jelly, which is a, a sort of like this vital like storyteller and counselor and sort of historian role in relationship to to monarchs. So the monarch in in these societies, right, always has a jelly, a jelly. Um, sure, I'm pronouncing that uh, incorrectly, but um, who is that sort of you know counselor and 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 keeper? of history and stories and and um, so the, the the kind of um, relationship between the storyteller slash you know historian and tradition keeper and the the monarch the ruler um, is a vital one in this story um, and so the the jelly uh, the, the jelly carry on this sacred inheritance of a role uh, sort of passing on culture right and the way that things should be and meanwhile, Mansour, who is this other character, is the son of the king. Um, although the status of his authority and that of his father is right from the jump, kind of a central question, kind of undercut because um, of some failures or some questions of legitimacy. Um, but I think even though Mansour's, um, you know, monarchy throne um, place is, is kind of at the crux of, of the journey here, Awa is really at the center. Um, and um, in the opening pages, we see these characters, and I just, again, these designs are incredible, they're just phenomenal. The characters are defined by, um, you know, what, how they look, obviously. This is just like such cool, such cool design, um, so stark, so memorable, so distinctive. And, um, and, you know, there's the proportions that are sort of cartoony accurate. Um, but the characters are also defined as much by the, you know, the artifacts that they, the objects that they carry as their poses, as their dress, as their, their dialogue. A witness like the lettering here and the language with the lettering um, that is just so distinctive. Um, you know, in this scene at the bottom, we, act, we, we, we come to learn that... Um, Mansoor is the the you know the the king the inheritor of the throne. The jelly is Awa supposed to be serving them, but you can see the icy irony in the response here um, and the way that um, that she talks. Um, she is loyal to this monarch, 
um, but by duty and not necessarily because she is um, somehow subservient or um, obeisant. And I, I, I just love the personalities that we can see right off the bat on this page. Um, a whole lot is established in these opening pages. And again, this is a story about storytellers and tradition and power and how the fate of the world really kind of falls in the hands of a few. Um, but very early on, we also see that there's a kind of kind of ancient and modern and futures uh, meshing or equivocation that I think is really important. There's this timelessness to the, the story of Jalea. And it's another thing that makes it feel like both Samurai Jack and folk stories, right? Samurai Jack had this way of just sort of like, um, you know, hanging loose with where, what era, what place we're supposed to be. All those things sort of got equivocated as they were sort of um, mashed together. And, um, and I think folk stories often do that. Um, and, and both are kind of unleashed from, you know, kind of our Western obsession with like linearity and time and, and pegging some specificity um, as a way, our way of conquering space and knowledge within Western society. I don't know why I say we. <laughs> um, I grew up in the U.S. Um, and so, you know, I think that you could see that within this page, the styles include like dance clubs and DJs right alongside mythology and traditions, you know, alongside like apocalypses, you know, and, and like these questions of salvation, the struggle for, great struggle for, for the salvation of the kingdom. Um, you can see on this page also that music plays such a huge role, which to me is an illusion of the place that storytellers sit in for, for moderns, right? I mean, musicians are the storytellers who narrate our times. And I think that's so true in modern society, and it's why it's so relevant for them to go into the club and to see this crowd of people. Because actually, in the story, along the way of the story, you know, I explained the plot, and I don't want to give up, give away too much. But you find out that there are gods and there are beasts, and and there are like you know armies and soldiers. But but really, where are the people that this struggle for this kingdom, uh, you know, is supposedly over? Well, they're in the club. Right, and I think the the story is 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 contemplating how uh, cities and people groups and 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 there's all kinds of powerful figures, but the masses, you know, who are supposedly the concern when it comes to rulership, where are they? You know, they are being held sway by music, right? They are under the the spell. They maybe true rulers are the arts. Um, I think that's just really fun and fascinating. Now the plot, which um, is kind of spun around different tellings of backstory and just, uh, just you know, these really, the, the chapters in this book are really organized in these pithy and fun, you know, sort of short objectives that they each have their own internal episodic rhythm, but they clearly are mounting to a bigger story. Basically, Awa and Mansour try to figure out how to reclaim the throne, and along the way they strike deals with various godlike figures and betray and be, get betrayed, and they try to get a hold of these, uh, you know, various symbols and magic items and things like that. Um, and so the plot, you know, gets through, but like great animation, again, one can have very little sense of what is going on in the story at the first at your first reading and still just derive a ton of enjoyment from the action, from the artistry, from the kind of compelling storytelling and character development that happens. Um, ultimately, this is a story about power uh, and, and, and peoples with power. 
But I think as many folk legends and as stories go, there's both the elements of what's expected and there's a lot of things that are unexpected um, surprises in the story. And in the comics syllabus way, we, we don't want to spoil the plot twists and the punchlines, even as we try to unpack the premise um, and think a little bit about the themes. Um, but indeed, belief and connection with the people, like you can see this here, this temple disconnect, discotheque, I should say, the, um, the, the, the kind of the, you know, Venn diagram here of, of the arts and storytelling and the kind of culture that we all engage in with belief and with how we, the stories in which we understand and rule ourselves um, is a lot of what this story is about. And um, so I just, you know, you got to check out Julia. It's, it's something really different from what, uh, for the usual course in US comics, uh, Juni Ba is, you know, one of the emerging artists that I'm most excited about. Um, and, uh, and I hope there's, there, there's a lot more to come. Um, props to TKO for really kind of uh, boosting this, this project and this kind of work. Um, so I'm gonna have a lot of fun rereading Julia and just kind of staring at Juni Ba's art for days. Um, so thanks so much for listening in. Hey, uh, stay tuned, um, subscribe to the podcast or follow or whatever, um, feedback, as I said, wherever you can give feedback or rate and review. Um, I would just so appreciate it. I'd love to read some of your feedback on the, on the podcast and keep subscribing, keep it locked. We'll do Polybag where we talk about new comics and stores, mostly from non big two independent publishers. We'll do the infinite unlimited where we keep reading Marvel unlimited and DC universe infinite. I think soon we're going to do a low key episode where all the stuff that Marvel unlimited has been saying, Hey, read this about the time variance authority and, uh, and, uh, you know, the Minutemen and all this stuff and Enchantress, you know, I've been kind of reading as I've been watching Loki. So I'd love to just do a little bit of comparison of those things on the infinite unlimited coming up and um i've been promising some eisner's talk so talk a little bit about the eisner nominees anyway all that to come soon keep it uh, uh subscribed here at the comics syllabus podcast and thanks much let's keep reading Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at MultiversityComics.com. Each week we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commanding. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinborough, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow in iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. Hey there. Uh, welcome to Comic Syllabus, where we read widely and dig deep in the worlds of comics and graphic novels. Um, I'm Paul, and I'm an English teacher and a comics uh, reader and here to look at this week's polybag segment where we talk about new comics that are out on the uh, date of June 30th um, 2021 at uh, your comic book shops. Um, we're part of the multiversitycomics.com network of podcasts where you can uh, find reviews and previews and interviews and um, shampoos and uh, strike throughs and parlez -vous. Uh, if you appreciate this kind of look at comics and graphic novels, please do subscribe and follow um, the podcast um, and get the word out. Um, connect with me. Let me know. Um, 
Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all those are possible ways to connect. And uh, if you're seeing this video show, then um, video segment, then you've already caught on to how you can catch these videos where I don't do a lot of fancy stuff. I do just want to show some covers and pages and talk about this very visual medium. If you are listening to the audio only podcast, that's cool too. Hope you're enjoying it. And uh, anyway, to find out about any of that, just check out the links in the show notes. All right. Um, for Polybagged uh, this week, June 30th, um, we're going to talk about Usagi Yojimbo, uh, the Dragon Bellows Conspiracy number one. Um, made in Korea number two from Image Comics. Sorry, Usagi Yojimbo from IDW, of course. And uh, Monstrous number 35 from Image, and then Crossover number seven, also from Image. We're pretty image heavy this week, um, but uh, we'll mention in the honorable mentions at the end uh, some titles coming out from other publishers as well. Uh, I want to start with Usagi um, and uh, fans of, of Usagi like me. Um, have a lot to be excited about this month because the Dragon Bellas Conspiracy is a classic. It's one of the first major Usagi Yojimbo arcs in the entire run of Stan Sakai's, you know, um, single creator long running um, series that has now moved through a, a variety of publishers. And I love the way that IDW has made the most of um, uh, Sakai's gifts and stories. In, um, in their time as publisher of Usagi. Um, it was originally published, this story, in um, issues 13 through 19 of the very first volume of Usagi Yojimbo, and then it was republished in the uh, Fanographics Collections um, book four, um, which was titled The Dragon Bellow Conspiracy. So six issue story, and it was really the first kind of, uh, you know, uh, grand tale of this length in Usagi's long run. So this was in the late, I think maybe the mid to late 90s that this originally came out. What IDW has been doing is been, has been representing the run of Sakai's uh, legendary work in color. Um, there were those of us <laughs> uh, devotees who felt like there was a kind of sacrilege in taking um, Sakai's masterful black and white work um, uh, absent even mostly of gray washes and things like that and then infusing them with color but I think a lot of people felt the same about things like Jeff Smith's bone or other things that were originally published in color but in fact I think it's actually very savvy because I think just like when bone became reprinted in color it also became packaged for a new audience in a way, I think what IDW is doing is removing at least one barrier for some readers, particularly of younger readers. And I think it's especially interesting to do that with Usagi Yojimbo because um, in a way we have now in the US um, a generation of readers who are actually more attracted to manga than to American comics oftentimes. And manga has conditioned them to actually to, to read and quite be able to enjoy, you know, um, uh, uh, black and white comics or comics that are mostly, um, you know, with screen tones and things like that. Um, however, I think uh, as Bone and other kinds of uh, graphic novels have also been really successful with young audiences and a YA readership, um, I think Usagi Yojimbo can appeal in that way. And so packaging the stories, putting color on them, um, uh, Patterson colorist in this in this issue um, 
is is a is a way to represent Sakai's classic work um, in a in a you know kind of a bright and attractive way. I think it's a smart move. Um, this story, as I said, is is one of those classics. In fact, when people ask where do I start with Usagi, the Dragon Bellows conspiracy is often a place that um, people recommend you to, to go and um, and one of the reasons is because this story really demonstrates Sakai's kind of continual um, playfulness and variety with storytelling you know with like non-linear forms of storytelling um, you know Sakai is very much um, like our Kurosawa you know a, a, an auteur who does things with the medium and has done such a long run and has so much output with Usagi that Despite having repeated characters and settings and sometimes situations, Sakai is always doing something new, always full of surprises and um, and exploring and experimenting. And so even very early on, you see kind of the, the non-linear storytelling. Um, in this six issue series, we're introduced to Tomo Ame, a character who comes back again later on. You see her right here on this sample page in the very opening of the book. Um, you will, we also meet Jen the Rhino. Jen is also a repeated character as, a, as well as Zatogino, who's a pig who has a sort of a false nose um, or a, uh, what do you call it? Anyway, a nose that's on a string. Um, and this, this sixth issue is, is, you know, it really feels novelistic. It has this sense of a dramatic epic going on. And it starts kind of with this new character, um, which, you know, uh, Sakai had already done in a few previous issues of, of Usagi Ojimbo, but to take this, the focus off of Usagi becomes a repeated um, tool for him to expand the storytelling range. And so rather than starting with Usagi in this story, we actually begin with Tomo, who is sent to um, kind of a rival lord's palace. She is sort of the, um, the both emissary ambassador and also sort of like the lead council and military leader for another lord. And she is sent to this Lord Tamakuro's palace to investigate what seems like it could be a kind of a, a rival faction amassing power, which turns out to be the case. Of course, all this happening after the fall of the, I think it's a shogun or the, uh, <laughs> the, the sort of military figurehead for whom Usagi uh, was once, um, you know, uh, loyal. And, um, and so early on, you know, this story really kind of gets to tell a, a tale of a kind of scope and a kind of length and um and there's just um kind of a lot of intrigue woven into the motivations behind different characters opportunities for you know betrayal and and, and unearthing mysteries um this preview page shows actually that there's a way that um as the story is told um sakai will use flashback and so you see in the very last panel of this page Tomo starts to have a flashback while being attacked and, and knocked off her horse. And those flashbacks really just show the sense of long and wide history that go into these stories. You know, these characters, not just Usagi, but every character that's met really has a part of, you know, a part to play in this grander tale of feudal Japan. Um, uh, with animals, <laughs> anthropomorphic feudal Japan that that Sakai, you know, sort of weaves over time into this long tapestry. And, you know, Usagi's always had this gift of 
you can read an arc, a story, sometimes often even just a single issue and have no background knowledge about the, the story um, and everything gets filled in for you along the way. Um, and yet, if you have read it all, it does actually really repay seeing a character again and knowing a little bit about the prior relationship between Usagi and this character. However, an aspect of Usagi as a character and many characters within this world is that there's a, you know, there are codes of honor by which they live, which actually supersede any kind of prior, you know, um, mere loyalty, let's say, or mere familiarity or mere friendship. And so that, that kind of code of honor, um, uh, guides the the actions the, the morality of the stories in a way that makes them not so dependent on you having known the backstory and that gets used interestingly here because Tomo and Usagi do have a prior relationship but we haven't seen it when this book starts so um, you know all of this I think um, exemplifies something that Sakai in his humility I think would be really understated about or at least has been in the interviews that I've seen that I've read that he doesn't he necessarily didn't necessarily approach this with like oh i'm gonna do 30 years of this you know massive uh, expansive story but really piece by piece as he combined research with his own kind of narrative gifts um combined sort of knowledge and and learning about um japanese history and um and also storytelling that he this world and these histories became deeper and deeper for him in the world of usagi and these characters um, Comicstom is basically divided into two factions, Usagi fans and not yet Usagi fans, as I like to say. And, you know, oftentimes the, the Usagi fans talk about what is the, a good entry point for a, a non-Usagi, not yet Usagi fan, um, not yet Stan Sakai fan. And it's hard for me to think of a better one. So, um, so check out, um, Dragon Bellows Conspiracy, number one, um, you know, props to IDW for sort of putting this out in a way that invites um, new fans to part to participate partake and enjoy also this week i think there is a, a usagi chibi book that um, looks a lot of fun i haven't gotten it yet i think it's it's uh, still still on its way to me so maybe one day I'll, I'll check that out as well as i'd love to do an archival revival episode about the the big grass cutter volume i just got last year um Let's go on to our next book, um, which is Made in Korea number two um, from Image Comics. Now, this came out last month and I, and I almost kind of overlooked it. And um, I don't know, I think it was that um, artist George Shaw, who has this very kind of indie style, um, a little closer to like an underground cartoonist than the sort of off the beaten track style of image books, although these days it, you know, is there an image style? <laughs> no, there's not. There's a lot of styles. Um, but I think George Shaw's art had a way that it, um, it's, it felt to me like something that might be better read collected. Um, I was wrong about that. I really liked the first issue and, uh, Jeremy Holt, the writer who is Asian American, um, you know, and Shaw, of course, team creative team along with, um, I think it might be Adam Wallet is the letter. Um, they write uh, this this story as a future, like a near future sci-fi world, where infertility and um, and AI kind of meet, so that um, couples who aren't able to have children are able to um, order uh, what what they call proxies, which are basically you know proxy children that are tech made into children. 
And the story, which kind of gets clarified here in issue two, um, is that we have in, in Korea, there's like a rogue engineer who wants to test out some kind of off limits AI or AI deemed, you know, like past the constraints, the self-imposed constraints that they want to put on these, um, on these robots or whatever you want to call them. And, um, and so he puts this code into this, this kind of, you know, this level of AI into a, a child who eventually gets adopted by an American couple. And so the engineer who's slightly kooky, you can see him here, um, and also sneaky is discovered and he's fired. And so in this issue, he goes off in search of his, of the proxy who carries the code snuck into, uh, one of these, um, one of these children. And meanwhile, as we saw in issue one, um, there's a pair of adoptive parents in the U.S. who, who've adopted this child. And in this issue, we see that they find their child to be precociously intelligent and she's read the whole library, you know, and she knows everything, but she's hungry for, curious for, says, isn't it appropriate now, now for me as a child to have, to go to school and to start building social relationships? Uh, nothing good can come out of a kid going to school. <laughs> I tell you that as a teacher. Um, but I think that this um, curiosity for social interaction, you know, where um, this uh, AI proxy child has absorbed all the sort of intellectual knowledge that there is, but knows that there is a whole realm of social and emotional, um, you know, factors and longings. Um, those questions are really very heightened when we think about AI not just as like abstract robots but as these surrogate children and then the obligations that we start to feel toward them as the parents in this story feel and all of that comes to the fore so the premise the setup to me is super intriguing as far as these questions about um, parenting about technology about about artificial intelligence uh, what makes us human um, and of course the kid goes to school and without spoiling too much yeah, it's just never never good <laughs> never good when kids go to school um i i think i i i overlooked um made in korea when issue one came out to some extent and uh, i need to rec rectify that mistake and i definitely encourage you to check out um made in korea oh i forgot to show this is the another sample page where we see the uh adoptive parents and um and the, the relationship they have um so yeah written by jeremy holt and art by george shaw um, from Image Comics. Uh, that brings us to our third book, which is Monstrous, number 35. And I, okay, I begin with a confession. Uh, since Monstrous started in 2015, it has sometimes either been one of my top books, and these two, um, Sana Takeda artist and Marjorie Liu uh, writer, some of my top creators, or they fall out of the list altogether. <laughs> <laughs> just I noticed that in fact um, I'm gonna talk about the Eisners in an upcoming episode um, I think it's kind of that way with the Eisners too they're either like really on the forefront of Eisner attention or off the list altogether and and I think a lot of it has to do with just publication schedule and whether it's out there but for me it depends on whether or not I remember what's going on in the story <laughs> because every time I read it I love the story and here at issue 35, we are really mounting towards something epic and world-changing and climactic. This is not sort of um, planned, you know, off the off the cuff, off the seat of the pants. This has been building towards the story since the beginning. And um, 
and I, and I think it's awesome. Um, and yet <laughs> I, I never entirely remember what's going on. This is one of those books that I, I really enjoy while I'm reading it. But sometimes when I read the next issue, I'll read the, the um, summary of the last issue and I'll go, oh, that's what happened. <laughs> and, and really it's no shortcoming of Lou or Takeda's storytelling. It's just my ability to sort of keep the story in my head over the months and years that it's been uh, ex expanding and unfolding. So, you know, now here we are in, in, in issue 35, which is maybe volume, I don't know, seven maybe. Um, and I know we're heading, I think like, you know, you can feel that you're heading toward the climax and an ending. Um, I guess the other feeling I have about this story being as, as expansive as it is, as you can kind of see again in this pre preview page where, where this is a little bit of a flashback, but it's, it's really kind of unveiling all of the, um, the story leading up to this war between humans and and the Cumanes and the Arcanics and all these different you know races or segments that we've we've seen in the story. Um, I guess uh, another fear that I have is that this story was really too far before its time, which is again no critique of the book itself, but really of of where we are as a comics um, readership and as a community. In fact, I, I thought that after it, when Monsters first came out, you know, I was like, this is where Image is heading, or this is where publishers are heading, where more and more stories that had these kinds of elements, you know, non-white, non-cis male creators, right? And, and, and this kind of fantasy that thrives in, in that, that is thriving right now in fiction. I and mean, you look at fiction and the kinds of um, writers that are producing fantasy that, um, you know, is honestly better than um, than Game of Thrones, you know, and and sometimes gets mistakenly categorized as YA, but is actually super thoughtful. And I, you know, um, in fact, I believe in its first year, Monstrous was maybe nominated for and submitted for one of the um, younger reader categories, maybe for teens or something like that. But I was like, what? <laughs> it's like F-bombs and pr pretty graphic violence and stuff like that. Um, but actually, the point about that is it's, this is adult entertainment. It really kind of, you know, it tackles this real possibility of like a matriarchal world and um, warfare and colonization and the kinds of trauma and, 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 and you know, kind of uh, impacts of of attempted genocide and things like that it's it's pretty heavy and pretty dark and it tackles all those in these very personal and kind of grand scale ways in this story world um but yeah it's it's big and so i can the confession here is that i sometimes read it and i just you know i honestly i reread i've reread volumes one and two a million times um and I, at one point i stopped trying to follow the thread and i decided that this is going to be a, a grand rereading <laughs> when, from start to finish when it's all done um, but meanwhile as I read individual issues as I did when I read 35 I can tell you know I'm obviously reminded of things that are going on and the stakes and relationships and um, I guess I'm just sad that series um, just to complete the circle on what I was saying earlier that series that have these you know similar ambitions these longer epics and creators that stay with it for a long time who are not named Kirkman um, that they've kind of feel like they've petered out a little bit at, um, at Image. You know, I mean, I think of Saga and how very halfway done it is and how, how much it meant to me and how much, how it's not here right now. And, um, 
and and all that reminds me that these books need our support and it's why month to month i keep trying to and wanting to support monstrous despite the kind of scale of the story you know and i felt a little bit meh about doing that about um hickman's and dragota's east of west i love love nick dragota i think the story had some dynamics that were questionable for me um i felt a little funny about remender and craig's deadly class again loved the art loved the stories and the characters but i think some of the, some of the um some of the elements of it you know i just feel so differently about monstrous and i just want it i want to support it so much um but again reading 35 i'm reminded that this story really is hitting these climactic levels as um and, and here's some light spoilers here uh, michael halfwolf and and the monster inside her uh zinn howard zinn the <laughs> kippa the you know the fox girl hopefully this is ringing some bells for me to name these characters two years like they're all now fully grown and all of the warring between these different um uh you know arcanics and and etc it's all heating up and it's all being revealed and um i i can't remember any of what transpired in roughly issues 13 through 30 of this epic story but you know again all the more reason to keep supporting this book for that for that grand reread i mean just look at these pages they are beautiful and you know the lengthy the kind of long recap pages do help and i and i get re-immersed in the epic and the developing drama and so i, I don't want to give away more or too much but there's these there are various twists and turns in 34 some pretty heavy stuff happened in in this issue it not only gets uh, you know expanded even more but then there's a twist to that um there's a lot of culmination of all the stuff that's been laid since issue one and i just think this series man is just what an achievement i mean every time i look at sana takeda's art on this i just feel like i can't believe i'm reading this like as a comic book right in certain periods of time every month you know that we're treated to this incredible art and world building um and i'm just sad that more books like monstrous haven't come in its wake um if i'm wrong about that and i'm just overlooking some things you know you know hit me up in the in the social media feed or whatever and and tell me what if you love monstrous and there's other things that i should be reading like it but i just feel like there's there's been nothing like it it's been incredible and um so uh, like like the way that i'm trying to enjoy steph curry while we have steph curry in the, and and the wonder that is steph curry i'm i'm just i'm just trying to enjoy monstrous um and i know eventually i'll be able to have a certain kind of enjoyment that comes from reading it start to finish but i think the enjoyment of month to month um or month to three months seeing this title is is something special of a month to. uh and finally crossover number seven so this book has had a lot of hype um and pretty big sales um, it was advertised and promised uh, as a vast crossover with lots of meta, meta, um, from Donny Cates and, um, I was going to say Ryan Stegman, from Donny Cates and Jeff Moore, no, Jeff Shaw, <laughs> this book, um, uh, is about comic book characters, a cataclysmic event, they've entered the, our real world, and now several characters are trying to flee from some um haters of these comic characters and they've all been sort of quarantined isolated into this kind of bubble and getting in and out of the bubble um it's a fun story donny cates knows how to write a good yarn and uh shah's art is pretty cool um pretty great i think i'm not as as high on these creators as others have been um 
uh, I like what they do. It's it's fun, super readable. Um, but uh, honestly, when I heard about this idea of this book and that it would actually cross over a ton of characters from you know other creators and other publishers, I had a little feeling, and I don't know if maybe some old nerds like me feel this way, a little bit of like, why do you get to do this, Donny Cates and Jeff Shaw? <laughs> you know, to me, they're still sort of newish around the block. Um, but what I like and what I've come to respect is that for us also maybe slightly older nerds, there's also this different enjoyment that comes when finally some of the reveals about who else is in these stories, like um, a little bit of minor spoilers for the first, you know, five, six issues, you know, Matt Kent characters and Mike Allred characters show up and as well as some, some, um, you know, I, I, I'm not going to give anything away, um, but, um, but also I think newer readers who are just Kate's and Shaw kind of fans may feel a little bit like, okay, I think I've heard of that character. I've read that book before, but, but I think it, it kind of repays, you know, um, readers who've been around for a little bit longer and who, who can remember these kind of hot creator owned characters um who get not only like a tip of the hat but really almost a kind of co-authorship or presence in this story and um it's kind of like these guys having you know good friends who are comics legends onto their podcast <laughs> um but i think actually what's so interesting and made issue seven um you know just pop up to this list to the polybag list is that I think that idea, that sort of meta idea and the, the way that creators are brought into this um, and their creations really reaches a fulfillment here. As in issue six, our main characters, they kind of reach kind of a bit of a holding pattern, which allows this issue to kind of divert to a different thing, right? We, we kind of take the focus off of our main characters. And so this issue is drawn by a familiar set of guests, you know, Phil Hester and Andy Parks inking. Uh, and written by another familiar guest, a creator who was actually mentioned early in the run of this book, uh, which is Chip Zdarsky. And the fascinating thing is that Zdarsky, who right, first made the scene as an artist on sex criminals and, then, and, and really kind of doing stunts at conventions, um, but now has really just shown and proven these incredible chops as a writer of Daredevil and Spider-Man, you know, and, and all these kinds of things. In, in this issue is reckoning in these pages of this very meta book um, about his 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 characters and, and his creations and and it turns out and here's a spoiler a little bit for this for you know just the beginning of this issue the the characters and creations he's reckoning with are not the, the creations in sex criminals or in Captara but chip Zdarsky himself who is, of course, um, a pen name for um, Stephen Murray. And so we have on this page here, Stephen Murray. And Stephen Murray has to reckon with Chip Zdarsky. And <laughs> I think it's really interesting because you're unpacking the actual uh, metatextuality of not only comic books and characters and the worlds and and so on, entering like a, a kind of reality that should be our, that is our reality, but also the way that creators and and for that matter fans are ourselves. We ourselves are characters, you know, whether that's who we are on the outside and who we present to uh, an, an audience or a public, or if that's in fact who we are on the inside. That if there's like 
you know, it's that question of like, is Batman Batman or is Bruce Wayne Batman, you know, or which one's the real person, you know? And I think um, those kinds of questions about um, identity, characters that we play, um, characters that we create and portray and come to represent us, um, that's just all speculated about in a really interesting way as Steve Murray encounters Chip Zdarsky, Chip Zdarsky, who was the writer of this issue. Uh, so this book was, I think, mildly interesting for me and cool until now, where now it's just gotten very interesting. So um, really encourage you to check out Crossover um, and Crossover, especially issue seven. Um, and so this week, a lot of other things are out. Um, the puzzle box that is Department of Truth marches on. Um, white number one from Black, Black Mask is out. Um, I just found out that I need to work harder to try to get a copy of that. Day. It's, a, it's a really limited run. <laughs> it's hard to get even if you pre-ordered it. Um, we, only, we only find them when they're dead. Number seven from Boom uh, is a, it's a gorgeous book and I, I'm enjoying that. There's a new book from Vault called Barbaric. You can see the uh, cover down below there. And uh, I think that's a it's, it's a cool first issue with an interesting premise. Takes the whole barbarian premise, which I don't like, um, but turns it into a different moral, uh, different moral center. So uh, I think it's kind of fun. Spectre Inspectors is on issue five, um, and that's a good one to keep up with. I love Beta Ray Bill, um, Daniel Warren Johnson's take on the character, and um, and really all of the um, interesting. Uh, psychological exploration that's going on there that's um, surprising <laughs> so issue four of that is out as well as Daredevil from the aforementioned Zdarsky and um, oh, is, is there a villain artist for Shadow there I'm not sure um, <laughs> the Jin Luen Yang written Shang-Chi um, number two of the ongoing is is also out and then DC has a lot of annuals um, the, including the Green Arrow 80th anniversary not including sorry this is a separate thing 80th anniversary, 100-page super spectacular, which looks fun. Another kind of these anthologies of different creators taking um, a shot. Uh, that's my poly bag for this week. Um, tell me what you're reading and what you're interested in, what your thoughts are, um, and uh, stick around this week or later in this audio episode if you're listening to the audio, as I'll talk about um, uh, uh, Eisner books and as well, hopefully. Um, to, to um, touch a little bit on Loki and some of the Loki I've been reading in conjunction with Disney Plus series. So, all right, let's keep reading.